Good morning, everybody. So, um, so our faith tells us that uh, we follow uh, a Middle Eastern refugee born out of wedlock um, who journeyed with people from all walks of life and religious persuasion who's killed by the state because the religious people forgot what their faith was all about. And we're still in the church having a conversation about how to treat refugees. Okay, I know you didn't know, I know you didn't know where I was going with that. You're like, where is he going? So I'm going to start, I'm going to say it again. Okay, so here we go. So, our faith tells us that we follow a savior who was Middle Eastern, who was a refugee. Remember that little tidbit how they had to flee to Egypt because of religious persecution. Anyway, um, who journeyed with people from all walks of life and faith persuasion. Who was killed by the state, the Roman Empire. Because the religious people forgot what their faith was about. So how are we supposed to treat refugees? Uh, Matthew 25, for starters, whatever you did for the least of these, you what? Did unto me. I, look, I could get up here every Sunday and do this. And I, I don't want to preach two sermons every Sunday. You know what I mean? You're tired of that. I'm tired of that, okay? I, so for me, instead of constantly talking, Sarah, will you come up, please, Sarah Artem? Instead of constantly talking about it, Talk about it within your small groups for crying out loud. Like, look, we've ta we talk about this all the time, right? Do something, amen? Like, do something. And, and Sarah over here is, uh, can I get that other mic? Sarah over, by the way, do you guys know that we have amazing people in our church? Do you know that? Do you know that? Yeah, like you, you're amazing. That's my affirmation for today. You are amazing. <laughs> Say with me, I am a no. Uh, we have amazing people in our, like if you're a millennial, you've been told that all your life. So you don't need to hear from me. <laughs> Sarah Artema works for World Relief. Like we, we have amazing people in our church who work for amazing organizations. And she's been doing this for a while. Her title is Church Mobilizer. And she specifically works, check this out, and she's part of our church to help churches be mobilized to deal with the refugee crisis, right? I mean, that's what she does. She helps churches deal and help. I know, it's amazing. I know. And she's a part of our church. And so anyway, of course, I texted her this morning. I was like, can you talk? Because I knew that number of you guys were going to be sitting. I know some of you were in O'Hare last night. So she, I just asked her to share a little bit right now about some of the ways that you can be involved. And then after service, I asked her, to be available. So Sarah, what I'm going to ask you to do is in the fellowship hall, um, carve out some sort of a space. Caitlin, somebody, just make sure she has plenty of space. And anybody that's interested in hearing more about what World Relief does, amazing thing, and how you could be more involved, please, after the service, um, find Sarah. So share with us here a little bit about, uh, we kind of know what you do at World Relief, but share with us a little bit about what you particularly do and ways that we we just feel overwhelmed, like, where do I even start? Like, what are some things we can do? Yep. No. <laughs> oh, there we go. Okay. Um, yeah, so I work with World Relief Chicago. We are a local refugee resettlement organization. So we're up in the Albany Park neighborhood, and we resettle about 500 refugees every year. Um, that is in question now, unfortunately. But um, I've been working there for about four years, and when I started there, I could have never seen this coming. <laughs> um, I mean, we're just outraged at what's happening. Um, it's really frustrating to see uh, what's going on. It's been um, encouraging for me to see how the churches we've worked with um, have stepped up and um, do want to know how they can get involved and be engaged. But um, overall, it's been frustrating to see other people in the church um, around the country who I would say are mainly driven by fear, um, just fear of the unknown, fear of who's coming over, 
Um, you know, part of that is misconceptions about what's going on and what the refugee vetting process is like. Um, and some of it is just fear of the other, fear of, um, you know, people from a certain region, people from a certain religious background. So um, I would say the first thing to do right now um, really is to educate yourself on um, how to tell people um, who refugees are, why they're coming, um, where they're coming from, what they're fleeing. Um, you know, they're fleeing war, they're fleeing conflict. They, you know, no one leaves their home if they don't have to. Um, there right now are 65 million displaced people around the world. Um, that's the most that the United Nations has ever recorded in history. Um, so it's a really pressing crisis. Um, so for us to close our doors on the people that come here right now is just really tragic. So um, yeah, I would say first, um, learn about refugees. Just learn about why they're coming. Um, and some ways to do that are to go to um, a, a few different sites or read a book. Um, there's a book that Worthily put out recently called Seeking Refuge, which is really great. Um, it's kind of a view on how Christians can support refugees. Um, so I'd recommend that book. There's a website called wewelcomerefugees.com. And they right now also have a pledge that you can sign that says that you stand with refugees and um, that you want to be welcoming them here to Chicago. Um, also, call your, your um, members of Congress. Um, even if they support refugees, it still makes a big difference right now. There's so many things <laughs> that are happening. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of things to advocate for. But um, even if they support refugees, still call them and say that I care about refugees because it affects the way that they set their agenda and the things that they push for. So even if they are pro-refugee and pro-immigrant, still call them and say, hey, I care about this. I want you to talk to other people who are in power about this. Um, you can tweet at um, the, the White House or tweet at um, the president himself. Um, that's an effective way that we've been finding is helpful. <laughs> it sounds kind of ridiculous, but it's, um, it's what a lot of advocacy organizations are, are saying to do right now. Um, you know, you can, you know, there's lots of the protests at the airport last night, um, after that, there's, you know, all the people who were detained as they were, as they came to airports in the U.S. who, you know, the law, or the executive order happened while they were on airplanes and they were unfortunately detained in airports on the way here. Um, because of those protests around the country last night, those people, for the most part, have been released. And um, there's even been, yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> Um, and there's even been, um, I read this morning, there's a change on um, the green card holders who are from the countries from the Muslim country ban has been lifted and they can come to the US. So um, people are speaking up, people are um, showing that they want refugees here. So, um, you know, there's a lot of ways to get involved traditionally with relief. Um, you can volunteer. Um, it's with the refugee ban in place, it's a little bit you know, I don't know what that will mean for the next four months, but there are still refugees here. And if you can get to know a refugee, um, not only do you just make a huge difference in their life, and I promise you they'll make a difference in yours, but you'll also be able to tell their story and you'll be able to um, just understand what they've gone through and you'll be able to share your, their story with other people you know and bring more people into this work, so. Thank you, Sarah, thank you. So as I mentioned, Sarah will be available after the service in the fellowship hall. And uh, I, I texted Sarah and said, I think, because we've been talking for a good couple of years about ways we could be involved. And, and, and I just, I, I sensed that there wasn't energy momentum around this because for many of us it's like a foreign issue. But it's at the forefront. And I think this is a critical moment where we as a church could also mobilize. And so I've asked Sarah to pray about ways that we as a church together to mobilize and be involved in the issue, not just for the next month, but for long haul, okay? So thank you, Sarah, and she'll be available after the service in the fellowship hall, so please, 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 before you rush out of here, um, seek her out and uh, ask good questions and find ways to be involved. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. We uh, <coughs> started uh, uh, talking last Sunday about silence and solitude. We have stock images of what an addiction uh, looks like. When we think of addiction, we think of uh, maybe someone with a heroin needle in their arm in the park. Maybe we think of, in our minds, someone with a bottle of gin, a brown paper bag, a 
nine in the morning. We think of addiction in terms of something that's out there in the back alley somewhere, something that's criminal. Um, and then when we do that, I think uh, two things. One, uh, it lets us off the hook. You go, I'm not an addict. And also, unfortunately, I think it keeps us from identifying with and ultimately being sympathetic to folks who struggle. Let me throw this out there. What if we define addiction this way? Can you put that up there? What if, what if we define addiction as the manic reliance on something, anything, in order to keep our darker, unsettling thoughts at bay? What if when we began to talk about addiction, we didn't talk about what we're addicted to? Because, come on, come on. If, if you're sitting there with your phone, scrolling through Facebook, and you're like, oh, that was an hour. Or you're playing video games, and two hours later, you're going, where did the time go? So instead of what, what, if, what if maybe we got to addiction in terms of what is it that you and I rely on maybe to keep ourselves from being rigorously honest about what's going on inside? What if we define addiction in terms of stuff that we rely on to maybe repress emotions and dark thoughts that we wrestle with that kind of bubbles to the surface when we're quiet and alone? Maybe when we talk about addiction, uh, I could ask this question. When is the last time you sat in your room alone without any distraction? And freely allowed whatever thoughts to come to mind, whatever feelings that we bottled up inside to sort of bubble to the surface. When's the last time you did that? Without the urge to. Hi there, can I just say this? For those of us, and we cover this in emotional spirituality, for those of us that don't want to deal with negative emotions like sadness and anger and bitterness, and I think I said this before, you can't just go, I'm just going to bottle up negative emotions. When you bottle up negative emotions, you bottle up emotions, period. When you bottle up sadness, you can't fully experience joy. When you bottle up anger, you can't fully experience love. I think we're addicted. They look different, but we're addicted. We're addicted to noise. That's why we're talking about this. We're addicted to noise. How many of you get in the car and automatically you got to have music on or some noise? How many of you get inside the house and you automatically have turned on the TV? How many of you, when you are still alone in a room, by the way, those spaces are rare in our culture. I was sitting at a coffee shop with Emily DeLue and I said to her, I'm like, there is noise everywhere. There is noise everywhere. And the problem, of course, is you and I contribute to that. What, by the way, I was away at a silent settler retreat, like first week of January. I was in a five-bedroom mansion by myself overlooking Lake Geneva. And it was like heaven to me. The only sound I could hear was the sound of the flies that was in my room. And I realized how foreign that is in our culture. Secondly, we're addicted to words. I said this last week. Well, those of us that grew up in church, good God. Theology is good. But we are addicted to sermons, listening, Bible, study, and word. It's a wordy, heady, based culture. We're also addicted to people. We're addicted to people. When's the last time you intentionally got away from people? Community is good. Friendship is good. We talk about that a lot. But if you cannot stand it to be alone, Dietrich Hopper said, then beware of community. You are a danger. I am a danger to community when we can't be alone because we will seek out what we need that God can give from people. 
we are also addicted, of course, most of all, to being productive. We live in a culture that says you are useless if you're not producing. Work 40, 50, 60, 70 hours. What have you done for me lately? We cannot just sit and just be. Why? Because it feels unproductive. That's why we don't pray. I have a hard time praying, not because I don't have time, but when I pray, it feels unproductive. Why would I want to do something that feels unproductive? Why are you so busy? Who are you doing it for? Why? These questions ever go through your mind? Questions like, if I don't do as much as I possibly can, I'll never make it in life? What is it? What is it? What is it? If I don't do as much as possible, I'm going to fall behind. Fall behind who? Fall behind what? If I don't do as much as I possibly can, I won't be successful. Success according to who? Your company? Your peers? If I don't do as much as I possibly can, I won't be acceptable. Acceptable to who? If I don't do as much as I possibly can, I'll disappoint someone. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. If I don't do as much as I possibly can, I won't measure. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like an addict. Silence. Solitude. Strips us of our false self. We briefly talked about this last week. Do you know what false self is? False self is that part of you and me that's in bondage to human approval and affirmation. False self is a side of you and me that pretend to be someone that we're not because we're afraid if you really got to know me, you might not like me. False self is a side of us that can't stop striving because if we stop, maybe, 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 just maybe, we'll hear true voices inside of our hearts. False self is a side of us that's living someone else's life and not the life that God has for us. And when we're alone in silence and quiet, listen, 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 when we're not performing, when we're not doing, when we're not producing, when we're not achieving, when we're not fixing, any fixers here this morning? We're not fixing anything, anyone, we're not solving. You and I realize how much our identity is wrapped around what we do. How much affirmation we get from what we produce. How deeply we care about what other people think and say. And how our entire life is driven by some need to prove to somebody. And in silence and solitude, we come face to face. With that reality. No wonder we don't want to do it. No wonder some of you are sitting here right now going, this is uncomfortable. When is the last time you and I intentionally sat and allowed God to do this work? Being stripped of your false self can be a painful experience. It will be painful. It will be painful. But our faith says what? That there is no resurrection without death. If anyone wants to follow me, carry the cross. What does that mean? Die to yourself. What self, Peter? Your false self. Your self-absorbed self. Your selfish, self-centered self. Then come follow me. You want to live? You gotta die to your false self. How do you die to your false self? Can't do it without silence and solitude. I love this quote by Henry now, and I could quote him every week for 30 minutes. Please read his stuff. Out of solitude is a beginner, is what he says. And I don't like reading long quotes because I'm one of those people after like two sentences, I just like stop paying attention. Like this is a little bit longer. It is this nothingness 
It's not my solitude that I have to face in my solitude. A nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, run to my work and my distractions so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I am worth something. The task, though, is to persevere in my solitude, to stay in my cell until all my seductive visitors get tired of pounding at my door and they leave me alone. The wisdom of the desert is that the confrontation with our own frightening nothingness forces us to surrender ourselves totally and unconditionally to the Lord Jesus. When you're in solitude, you're going to hear the pounding on the door of your heart. Do something! The world is out of control. What are you if you're not doing anything? And solitude, Dallas Willard said, are the two most radical disciplines for those of us in the world. They are so foreign and so difficult. Look, it's hard for me just to preach on it. You know what I'm talking about? I, I'm like, I'm saying words that are like, foreign. I'm like foreign, speaking a foreign language to most of us. It's like, what is he talking about? Silence and solitude. Hit me now and again. Without solitude, it's impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside time to be with God and to listen to God. Do you believe him? Do you believe him? Definition of solitude and silence. Solitude is a practice of being absent from people and things in order to attend to God. Being absent from people and things in order to attend to God. Silence is the practice of quieting every inner and outer voice to attend to God. As I mentioned last week, silence deepens the solitude. It completes the experience of solitude. Did you know that over 1,500 times in the Bible, the word listen or hear is found? Let me say that again. 1,500 times the words listen or hear is found. Here's some scripture passages. I breezed over. I didn't actually I didn't even go over it last week because we didn't have time. Psalm 46.10. Say it with me. Let's read it together. You ready? Here we go. Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. So there's a relationship between knowing God and what? Being still. So apparently you can't know God if you don't know how to be still. Psalm 43.7. Here, ready? Be still before the Lord and wait patiently. By the way, word be still, do you know what in Hebrew literally means? This is going to be so cool. It means let go of your grip. Be still, let go of your grip. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. Exodus 14, 13. I love this one. Do not be afraid. Read it together. Ready? The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. So apparently God fights for you. <laughs> These are words of Moses to this life, by the way. Psalm 6, 4, 4. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Zephaniah 1, 7. Be silent before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. Habakkuk 2.20. The Lord is his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Isaiah 30.15. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. So we have like 1,494 more to go. Ready? Here we go. No, I'm not going to do that. Do you? This isn't isolated. Oh, man. When I could finish the sermon right here and go, this is why we are where we are in our culture. And then, of course, you see Jesus. How often did he withdraw to a lonely place? 
Here's some examples. If you're taking notes, Mark 1, 35, very early in the morning, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Luke 5, 16, Jesus often withdrew to a lonely place and prayed. Luke 6, 12, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. The most important decision Jesus is about to make the night before He's alone, silent. The most important decision he's about to make, choosing 12 men who will transform the world. Jesus says, the thing that I need to do is to be alone and to be quiet. Do you have important decisions to make? Matthew 14, 13, when Jesus heard what had happened, that John the Baptist was beheaded, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. John 6, 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountains by himself to, I could spend like 10 more minutes talking in the Gospels about how frequently Jesus is alone, solitude, and I don't know if there's a more important sermon to preach, frankly, because this is the beginning. We talked about Elijah, and that's what we're talking about in this sermon series. I'm primarily looking at Isaiah, First Kings chapter. Uh, I'm sorry, First Kings chapter, chapter uh, 17 to 19. We're talking about Elijah, not Isaiah. Another guy, Elijah. We're looking at Elijah and the life of Elijah. It's one thing to read a story and live a story. I've been living the story of Elijah via scripture and also other books about him. Elijah appears with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses. Elijah, do you remember, doesn't die. He's taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire for crying out loud. <laughs> That's something I can get on board with. He's on the Mount Rushmore of faith, giants of faith for Israel. And yet, James says this about him. James chapter 5. Elijah was a human being. Even as we are, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. What separated Elijah wasn't that he was more spiritual than we were, the fact that he was more gifted than we were. What separated Elijah is you see this pattern in his life. He goes into the desert, then out of the desert into the wilderness. He goes into the desert in solitude and silence, then out of the desert into the world. Let me just say this, and then I need to move on. In light of what we talked about even this morning, refugees, you cannot minister effectively for God without nurturing a hidden life with God. You cannot, I cannot effectively minister. Please pay attention to this. But there's a world on fire. I need to go you cannot, I cannot effectively do things for God without a hidden life with God. If you and I go there without this hidden life with God, we are going to go there self-righteous. And this world doesn't need any more self-righteous people. Can I get an amen? We need our self-righteousness to be bleached out of us so that it results in deep humility. The only thing that will cause deep humility in us is a life hidden with God in the desert. Where your affirmation comes from is unconditional love, not what you do. Don't you dare walk out of here and go out into the world saying, I got to do something. Unless you're willing to go to the hidden place. How many of us are ministering out of a deep sense of, I am his beloved? My identity is in him. My affirmation approval already is. I don't need to prove myself to anybody. There's some lack I'm trying to. Please don't heal yourself by healing other people. Please do not heal yourself. 
by healing other people. That's selfish. Hidden place out into the world. Hidden place where we're just quiet for two minutes for crying out loud. Out into the world. Let's look at Elijah. See, see? There's nervous anxiety out there. There is, I don't, what's that? A little bit? Yeah. By the way, okay, no, not that today. Okay, let's go for a second. Verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except in my word. Who is Ahab? Ahab is called the most wicked king. Now, there are a lot of wicked kings before this dude came along. But he has the title of the most wicked king. Part of it is who he's married to. Who is he married to? Jezebel. Jezebel. Jezebel is the daughter of the priest king of Tyre and Sidon. She is a fanatical devotee of Baal, fertility god. When she marries Ahab, one of these political alliances, she does something that never happened in the life of Israel. She makes Baal worship state-sponsored. She's setting up seminaries to worship a Baal. She is appointing. Some of y'all laughed last week when I said this. I'm not, I'm not making any parallels, okay? Just chill it. She's appointing cabinet members, okay, for Baal worshipers. The different secretaries of Baal worship. Don't, again, don't draw parallels, right? She's, she is basically turning the nation of Israel, along with her husband, in the spirit of spiritual apostasy. And Elijah has enough courage to speak truth to Ahab. Isn't that powerful? But listen to what happens as soon as he does. Look at verse 2. Look what God says. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide. Everybody say hide. Hide. In the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. God calls Elijah into the desert. Hide carries the idea of conceal yourself or to absent yourself. He's basically saying, go hide in the desert. But I just spoke to it. No. Go hide in the desert. Some of you may be sitting there going, but the whole country is falling apart. Elijah is a prophet. The nation is a spiritual apostasy. Elijah's prophet. He's the one guy that could do something. Elijah could have easily said, there's too much to do. I don't have time for silent fellowship. Huh. Let me say that again. There's too much to do. I don't have time for silence and solitude. There's too much to do. I don't have time. Can I tell you something? You don't have time not to practice silence and solitude. You do not have time not to practice silence and solitude. He could have easily said, the whole nation is on fire. I need to do something. God goes, hide. Be quiet. Go hide. Be quiet. Do you know why? Do you know what happens in Isaiah, 1 Kings chapter 18? He will be on Mount Sinai, Mount Carmel, with 450 prophets of Baal in the biggest spiritual showdown the Bible has ever seen. What do you think prepared him for that? Hide. Verse 3. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. Verse 4. Where you will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens. By the ravens were dirty birds. I don't know what the deal with that is. I don't know. Anyway. The ravens. To supply you with food there. Verse 5. So he did what the Lord told him. He went to the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and he stayed. Everybody say stay. He stayed there. Verse 6. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. God takes care of Elijah daily. Isn't that cool? He takes care of your life. By the way, I love the fact that God provides meat. I think there's going to be meat in heaven. Lots and lots of. Oh, anyway. I don't know what kind of meat it was. Chicken, 
but you know, me, my wild imagination, I'm like, I'm sure it was some great filet mignon or something, you know what I mean? And it's a brook. It's not a lake. The point, despite Elijah's illusion that he lives with and that we live with, God is saying to him, I'm in charge. God is saying to Elijah, you think you're in control of things. You think you sustain yourself. You think you're the one that makes things run. You think the world is indispensable without you. You think the world cannot go. Let me tell you something. I, a wise, loving, gracious, compassionate, kind God is in charge and I'm going to take care of you. Do you know why that's so important in silence and solitude? Because the first thing that you and I will face when we go into silence and solitude is this truth and reality. I am not in control. And you will come face to face with your fear, maybe greatest fear, of letting go. Someone said, Jesus, letting go. Ninety percent of us in this room, maybe more. You might not think you are. Do you know how afraid you are of letting go, allowing God to be in control? Your family. You grew up in a family that was chaotic, completely out of control. You're like, that will never happen to me. Some of us past betrayal. I had somebody tell me, I've been disappointed by authority figures all my life. I will never trust. But for most of us, most of us. Most of us, it's because of a distorted image of God. We don't think that he is our heavenly father who has our good intentions and he will take care of us. We don't think that he is our heavenly father who intends good for us and will allow our life to unfold according to his perfect plan. We don't trust it. We think that God is angry, constantly disappointed, always expecting and expecting and expecting. That's the image of God we have. And if that is the image of God we have, how can you and I possibly trust him? And if you don't trust him, you will not follow him. Even my children know that if you don't trust somebody, you will not follow him. What does this have anything to do with silence and solitude, Peter? It had everything to do with silence and solitude. Why are you running around like a chicken with his head cut off? Why are you so busy, unable to rest, truly rest? Why are you so scared of allowing your future to unfold without your input, without your participation? Why are you scared to death that you will not be able to? Why? Because we don't trust God. We don't trust what I do. You don't trust that he is wise, loving, and is for you. And if you do not trust that he is wise, loving for you, of course you're going to want to maintain control. Of course you're going to say, I will never let these things go. Of course you're going to be scared to death that if you don't take care of your family, then who will? You don't take care of yourself, who will? You don't take care of your children, who will? Of course you're going to go, if I don't do that at my workplace, who will? Some of us, if I'm not the one out there working for justice, then who will? Are you kidding me? It has everything to do with trust. Silence and solitude is an invitation to let go of your control. It's when you enter into a space and time that says, I'm letting go of my plans for yours. I'm letting go of my agenda for yours. I'm letting go of what I would like to see happen for yours. I'm letting go of my purposes. For your kingdom purposes. It's an invitation to let go and say, God, you take it. And for anybody here, any one of us here that has been functioning most of our lives from the perspective of, if I don't, who will? If I don't, who will? Anybody here like, I have a plan for my life. I have a plan for your life. I have a plan for my children's life. I will fix me. I will fix you. I will fix the world. For any one of us, silence and solitude says, you are not in charge. You are not in control. That's not when you're sitting there doing nothing. 
not in charge. I'm not in control. No, you never were. You never will be. It's an invitation to say, I trust you. Two questions will come to mind. One, what if things fall apart? Everybody look up here. Everybody look up here. Things will fall apart. Listen, things will, things that God never intended in the first place. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, Amber. You know what I'm talking about. Listen, listen, listen. Let's all, it's the Oprah moment. Okay. Things, what if things fall apart? I know you're asking it. There's like two people in this room that are not asking it, okay? Every one of us, things, and I'm telling you right now, things that God never intended will fall apart, and that's a good thing. No, it ain't the one. There's another one coming up. Things. Listen to me. But if I don't think we'll fall, all these things are like, oh, no, 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 no. You don't do anything, they will fall apart. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Secondly, what if I fall apart? Y'all like, why do I come to church again every Sunday? <laughs> Answer, you ruined it. Your false self. That part of you that needs to die. You know the part of you that is so hungry for people's affirmation that a like sign on Facebook makes your day? That part of you needs to fall apart. Can I get an amen? You know that part of you, when you're alone and lonely, you text 15 random people on your address list, hi, 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 hi. And somebody actually replying text, ah, ah. that part of you needs to fall apart. Here's the thing, though. You ready? It's when you and I fall apart and that part of us is just mantle dismembered. God can rebuild us to our true self. Now, here's the thing. Which one of us would sit in here and go, no, I don't want to live into my true self. I don't want God to put me back together in my true self. I'd rather live with huge insecurities all my life. I'd rather, you know, live with wanting affirmation approval all my life. I'd rather, you know, live. Who in this room would actually sit here and go, I don't want. But many of us. Many of us are like, but I'm scared to death of that process. That's why you will need to remember a God who says, I'm going to feed you in the morning. I'm going to feed you at night. Expect it. For those of you that have enough courage to go, I will actually do this thing called science altitude. Your world will fall apart, things that God intended, and you, your false self, will fall apart so that God can rebuild you. God will not force this on you, thank God. However, some of you will actually get to this place as a last resort. You'll get to a point of desperation. And that's okay. When you get to that place, don't be quick to leave. Let desperation do its work. Lean into it. Desperation. Causes us to be open to radical solutions in the spiritual life. Willing to do anything. It's like a cancer patient looking for a cure. If you are at this place, you're like, I am not myself. I don't know who I am. I'm living a pretend life. I want to live free and authentic. Let desperation do its work. Verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up. Oh, I knew it. <laughs> because there 
there has been no rain in this land. I needed to wither because some of us are like, oh, I knew it. That's what happens when you trust God and let control. The brook dried up. And this is when we go, it's not, it not, it not worth trusting God. I did the whole time. Guarantee you, when you do this, when things fall apart, you're going to go, I'm going to need the rain back in control. If it was me, I'd be like, give me a map. I need to find water. Give me a map. But Peter, you're in the desert. Where are you going? I don't care where I'm going. I'm just going to do it myself. You know what Elijah does? He speaks. And look, God does. I don't need to preach on these verses. I just read it. It's a story that teaches us. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and, and, and bring me, please, a, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my sons and that we may eat it and, you know, and then die. <laughs> I'm telling you, when you're in that place not in solitude, it's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. It's going to make you go, is this isn't working. This isn't working. My, my list, to-do list just quadrupled. This isn't working. That relationship that, you know, I fake pseudo kind of held together, it's falling apart. That I stay Verse 13, Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. So he did learn something. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me. From what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry. Until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry. In keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Silent solitude is an act of trust. It's saying, I'm not in charge of outcomes. You know the needs of my family better than I do. You know my future better than I do. See, for many of us in our 20s and 30s, the thought of having our future destiny unfold without our participation input is just, that's just nonsense. I need to make it. No, 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 there's a role that you play. But he I have to be really practical here, and then we're going to do this. Because, you know, last week, they're like, how do we do this? Uh, I made sure I carved out some time at the end today. There are these things, and we're going to talk about this every week in the sermon series, and we're actually going to practice this at the end of the service. Because some of y'all, this is the first moment here this whole week where you're actually going to be quiet. First thing, as we do, how do we do this? Silent solitude. If you're taking notes, this is a good time to take notes. Identify your sacred place and time. Identify your sacred place and time. You have to find a place. For me, it's a very comfortable chair right in front of our living room. That's where I sit in the morning with my cup of coffee. And then when I'm about throughout the day, sometimes when the weather is nice, in Chicago, that's like, you know, two months out of the year, I, uh, I will take a walk. For some of you, moms, it may literally be for five minutes when you lock yourself inside the bathroom. Can I get an amen from moms? Yeah, oh yeah, you know what I'm talking about. For some of you at office that can't get away, most of us lunch hours, get away for that lunch hour. Go, go find, go, to a, go find a place. Where you can, and if you really, literally, physically can't get away, I've asked, also told guys, turn your, bear, uh, bear, turn your chair from facing the desk, because that's work, 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 opposite, so that you're literally facing something that's not reminding you. There's a number of things. But it is important that you find a sacred place. Secondly, more importantly, you got to schedule it. If you don't get a hold of your schedule, your schedule will get a hold of you. You have to begin the day going, when am I going to do it? When during this day. If you sit here and you go, when I wake up, I'll decide, you'll never do it. Wake up in the morning and go, when am I? 
Better yet for some of us, the night before, when I get up tomorrow morning, tomorrow, when, on tomorrow Monday, when will I schedule this thing? When will I do it? You've got to find a space, place, and time to do it. Silence is all to remind us, listen, that our spiritual lives were meant to live in an awareness of God all day. It is when we train ourselves to be aware of God's presence in inactivity that we're able to be aware of his presence even when we're active. Schedule a time to find a place. Secondly, this will come as a huge encouragement. Start, start with a modest goal. Don't get up tomorrow morning and go, for the next hour, I will be silent. You're going to last two minutes and go, I can't do it. Better to celebrate small successes rather than be discouraged by larger failures. You know what I said to people? If you can do two to ten minutes a day, two to, that's it, two to ten minutes a day, consider that a huge success. And then eventually increase it. But find two to possibly ten minutes this week when you could just be quiet, no phone, no music. Two to ten minutes when you can start modest with a modest goal. Okay? Don't be Superman or Superwoman. Okay? Third, settle into a comfortable yet alert posture. This might sound silly, but this is how I do it. Find a posture in a place where you can be comfortable. Common sense, right? Fourth. Ask God to give you a simple prayer that expresses your openness and desire for God. So you see, here's what I like to pray. When I'm there, okay, I pray these following prayers. Sometimes it's, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Sometimes it's, come on, Lord Jesus, come on, Lord Jesus. Sometimes it's literally just, Jesus, Jesus. Sometimes it's my spiritual breathing. It's breathing out, I can't. Do it with me. And then breathe in, but you Breathe out. I can't. Breathe in. But you can. Breathe out. All that's sinful, all that's impure, all the stuff up there. And breathe in the Holy Spirit. But you can. Sometimes, sometimes I actually have a mental image in my mind where I'm going to hug Jesus and he's hugging me. No words are exchanged. We just simply embrace Jesus. Can I just share something with you? When I first started doing this, you know what happened? I realized I wasn't very huggable. You know why? Because I was carrying all this baggage. In my mind, I'm carrying all this baggage, you know, concerns, responsibilities, my fears, my insecurities. I was very clumsy to hug. But the good news, no yelling. No, come on, man, we dealt with the baggage. It was simply Jesus saying, put the baggage down. Just come as you are. Tired. Weary. Sometimes, I don't want to be here. I know. Two more. Close your time in silence with a prayer of gratitude. Sometimes I pray the Lord's Prayer for God's presence with you. And lastly, most importantly, check this out. Resist the urge to judge yourself for your experience in silence. Resist. I, the first thing that's going to come out of your mind is, but I didn't hear anything. Not the point. We have to get away from this mindset that we have when we do quiet time or devotional. I have to get something and get inside of it. Done is a failure. The whole point of silence and solitude is just to be with him. And whatever the time was like, whatever the time was like, it was meant to be. Don't judge. Your, we don't do that with other relationships. I don't sit there with my wife. Sometimes we just sit and just chill. At the end of the day, don't, we don't just, don't you get something out of it? I'm getting it now, but you get it now. We don't do that. Intimacy is when you are simply with. With. It's spiritual maturity to get to a place to go, but I didn't feel nothing. I didn't hear anything. It's spiritual maturity to say, this time was exactly as it was meant to be. I was with you. Do you know how revolutionary this was for a group of men that I'm mentoring? We meet every Saturday. We used to meet every other Saturday morning. We're going to meet again. Two guys came up to me and said, do you know how we pray? We pray literally for like 40 minutes sometimes. 
And they said, I've never thought this before. They said, the whole time when you're sitting here, mind's wandering, you realize that God is pleased. The fact that you're just here. But I didn't get anything. God's pleased. Whatever expectation or results revelation offered at times to God and sin, God's present, God's waiting. You don't need to do anything. Here's the crazy thing. You ready? You and I don't even have to go, God, I'm coming, okay? Hey, hey, hey. We don't need to grab anything. We don't need to do anything. Get his attention. By the time you get there, God's like, I've been waiting for you. No words. Just breathe. Is this hard? Try asking somebody who's never run in his entire life to sprint a mile under five minutes. That's what it's going to feel like. Like, I can't, of course, but eventually, eventually over time. I had somebody come up to me last week and they go, you know how we had that three minutes silence? She said, I wish it could have just gone on for a while longer. You know? You know? Me too. When God says, be still, he's reminding me, if I'm asking you to do it, If you're holding a Bible, a pen, just put it, put it, we're going to literally, guys, do this just for five minutes, okay? Five minutes, that's it. I'm going to be the timekeeper. Don't look at your phone, don't look at your watch. Some of you that have that internal clock. Like moms are like amazing at this. You know the internal clock. Because you're like, I have five minutes to eat, I know. So, so you know, but try and not to, you know, I'm the timekeeper. Put, put, put away your phone, put away your pen, put away your bulletin. Don't hold, just put everything. Put everything, put everything to the side. Sit comfortably, sit comfortably. By the way, if somebody falls asleep during this time, I won't be offended. God won't be offended. Some of you are just so tired and exhausted. I'm going to talk about this next Sunday. That sometimes all God wants you to do, it's okay, go to sleep. Go to sleep. Go to sleep. And we'll see you next week. He does that with the wise. He says, so, so don't worry. You don't need to impress him. He's already impressed with you. <laughs> you, don't, you, don't need to, you don't need to try and get his attention. He, he, he's been waiting for you. But what if I don't hear? It's not the point of hearing and getting an insight. Although often you'll see guidance and insight comes amazingly when we keep our mouth shut. So just be comfortable. And I'm literally going to start us in a few seconds, okay? And for five minutes, that's it, church, that's it. That's all we're going to do. Shh, for five minutes, for five minutes, we're just going to listen to his invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Whispered underneath your breath, Jesus, come Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I receive you. I give you what you want. Speak gently in my soul. When the loud outer noises of my surroundings the loud inner noises of my fears keep pulling me away from you. Help me to trust that you are still there, even when I am unable to hear you. Give me ears to listen to your small, soft voice saying, come to me, all who are overburdened and weary, and I will give you rest.
loving, sports 